Plague is gone. It's just Marley and me. You've never heard that one before, <laughs> right, Marley? The, the very first time. That's so clever and fun. Does <laughs> that? Okay, be honest. Does that get old? Or are you like, okay, I've heard that one. That's enough. Do you even I like mean, that movie? Just tell me you hate that movie. At this point, like that movie is what, like ten years old now? Oh, at least, if not even more. Yeah, so it's like, okay, people, let's think of something new, please. <laughs> Welcome to the WCIA 3-in-1 podcast. Brett Barron's here in the studio along with Marley Weirda at her apartment. Craig is gone. It's just Marley and me. You've never heard that one before, <laughs> right, Marley? The, the very first time. That's so clever and fun. Does that, okay, be honest. Does that get old? Or are you like, okay, I've heard that one. That's enough. Do you even I like mean, that movie? Just tell me you hate that movie. I actually read the book. Wow. Before it was a movie. Um. So yeah, I read the book. I saw the movie. But at this point, like, that movie is what? Like, 10 years old now? Oh, at least, if not even more. Yeah, so it's like, okay, people, let's think of something new, please. <laughs> Great way to start the 3-in-1 podcast. <laughs> Marley's signing off now. That's it. She's had enough. All right. No, we're excited here. Uh, the first podcast with... Uh, just the two of us. We'll add a third member to our staff here coming up shortly. But uh, just for us right now, we're going to plow on and continue on in this time of social distancing. We were all in the studio last week. That was fun having Craig kind of reminiscing. It was our best podcast yet. Thanks for everybody who tuned in and or watched on our website. So we post both of these. Uh, the video is on our website. And if you're into watching 50 minutes of somebody just staring at a camera or uh, – Marley on video, then maybe that's your best option. If you like just playing it on your podcast player, we have all of these on your favorite podcast player. So, uh, you know, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Great response last week. And Marley, I had a lot of fun just kind of reminiscing about Craig's time here. Yeah, that was fun. And I think, um, you know, you guys kind of took the reins on that one. Obviously, you've known Craig for a lot longer uh, than I had. But, you know, it was good to to kind of throw it back and and relive some of our good memories together and i'm glad we got to do it all together because we did start this podcast you know when um this whole pandemic kind of erupted so um i'm glad we were able to break the rules for a little bit so we could all be together for that last one with craig and make it special for him we still spread out here on the wci3 podcast studio we got a little round table we were you know maybe four or five feet away from each other so we, we did our best right. to social distance and, you know, Craig's doing well. First week, he took a job over at the Geese College of Business at U of I. And it's weird for him because, he, you know, you take a new job, you're excited to go meet your new coworkers, all that kind of stuff. And he's still at his apartment. He's, he hasn't gone into work yet, yeah. so to speak. And so it's been a little bit uh, of an adjustment for him. And maybe just getting up in the morning because if you know Craig, you know that he does not like to get up early in the morning. And so those uh, Zoom meetings for his new job have, have been in the morning. But talk to him this week. He's doing well. So uh, we wish him nothing but the best. But the big news this week for Illinois football is that they get uh, two new additions, one for this fall and one for next year and just their third class of 2021 commit. want to talk about that coming up. Also, Io. Uh, wins the Dyke Edelman Award for Illinois, the best male athlete in all of this season and this past year for Illinois. We'll chat about that, his draft outlook. He had a Zoom call with the media. We spent about 30 minutes talking to Io earlier this week, 
as well as Jacqueline Quaid, who won the Female Edelman Award. We'll dive all of that, dive into all of that, chat about it coming up here. The Medal of Honor, the Spirit Awards, Last Dance, NASCAR's back this weekend, MLB negotiating with its players to try and strike a deal and get back on the field, all coming up here in the three-in-one podcast. But Marley, we start with this, and I think this is the biggest story of the week, at least for Illini fans. It's that Treshawn Smith, the Louisville defensive back, uh, commits to Illinois as a grad transfer, so he will come in, have two years of eligibility left with the orange and blue, and it continues on, this huge transfer push that Lovey Smith has undertaken. Now 14 total transfers on the roster for this fall as of now, and they could still add some more. It comes out to about 16%, 14 out of 85 players now on the roster are transfer players, and we can go into this a lot of different ways, but what was your first reaction about getting a guy who has already made an impact at the FBS level in Louisville transfer Treshawn Smith, Marley? Yeah, I think grad transfers are always good in that sense because, you know, it's usually a guy that has, you know, three-ish years of of experience. Um, Most of the guys that Illinois has already secured in the grad transfer market have been um, people that, you know, did make an impact on their team or were kind of on the rise or wanted a change to, to come here and, and make an impact. So I think, you know, that that's good because they're players that have uh, experience. And obviously it's exciting when, when they're getting these, uh, you know, four or five star recruits out of high school. But with a grad transfer, it does add, you know, a little bit more maturity and uh, experience to the team, um, which is something that, that can also be important when you're you're trying to build a program. And you say most guys have three years experience, and that usually is the case. If you graduate in three years, you can leave and and still potentially go play. If you redshirted one of those years, you can have two years of eligibility left, and that's what Treshawn Smith has. But he only played two seasons at Louisville, suspended all of last year by new head coach Scott Satterfield there. He came in in his first year trying to develop a culture. Don't know the reason why Treshawn was suspended, but he did not play last year. Had 70 tackles his first two seasons at Louisville and so he comes in as a guy who does have some experience at the power five level and has proven that he can do it but how much does a guy coming off a suspension for an entire year raise an eyebrow for you and are you surprised that Lovey Smith took him in that sense because Lovey's a no-nonsense kind of player he's kicked guys off the team before for unspecified violations of team rules and it seems like that Lovey isn't willing to bend the rules, so to speak, that so many college football and basketball coaches are willing to do. You know, we always see, hey, they're suspended for the first game against an FCS team or against a lower-level team that they know they're going to beat. Or all of a sudden, the third game of the year, Marley, maybe the first two games of the year are bigger games, but all of a sudden, the third game of the year, it's against a lower-level team. And now you see eight guys suspended all of a sudden. Look, that yeah. just that didn't happen in the last week. That was stuff that was played out maybe months beforehand. So the long sense to this whole question, Marley, is are you surprised that Lovey even took Treshawn? Yes, absolutely. Because I think, you know, in, in the press conferences that we've had with Lovey when, you know, he's somebody asked him a question about, you know, a player that got suspended is, like you said, Brett, he's a no-nonsense guy. He's like, we're this is a program where – you know, where we want to build young men, you know, this isn't just about being good on the football field. Like we want to develop um, these athletes as people and which makes me kind of question, okay, you're bringing somebody onto your program that like doesn't necessarily have the best track record. 
record in a sense, which kind of kind of contradicts what you know Lovey Smith stands for and the the culture that he's trying to build um, at Illinois. But yet again, I can see the flip side where maybe Lovey is thinking, okay, everybody maybe deserves a second chance, or maybe that this is a program where you know Lovey might be more strict in a sense, and uh, this is a university and a program where Treshawn isn't going to, to get in trouble or get suspended like he did at Louisville. So uh, I am surprised, but I'll give him I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I will too in that sense because we don't know the full story. There's always two sides to every story. We've heard Lovey say multiple times in the past, sometimes divorce is a good thing. And there's yep. usually a second chance in divorce, right? Whenever that may come, you know, in, in the love sense, you may fall in love again. There's a second chance there. There may be someone else out there that's better for you. In a program sense, in a football sense, you know, hey, it didn't work out here for whatever reason. Go try somewhere else, right? I think of Tevian Jones. It didn't work out here for Tevian. We all saw the potential of what he could have been. And, you know, he even showed that, you know, a couple of years ago in, in the Maryland game in Madison Square Garden, you know, he puts up all those points and, and leads Illinois to a win. We all saw the potential. We liked what Tevian Jones could potentially do but he he beat himself up you know he didn't take care of his business off the court I think a fresh start is good for him and maybe that's what Treshawn Smith is looking for here a fresh start and now Illinois is giving him that opportunity and Lovey Smith says come on into the program the bigger thing to me is how many transfers that Lovey Smith has in his program now he is fully embracing this transfer mentality you get just in this class alone so for this fall alone Illinois will add Christian Bell, Brian Hightower, Brevin Jones, Blake Gerasani, Desmond Dan, and now Treshawn Smith just for this class, the class of 2020. Christian Bell, the defensive end from Wisconsin. Brian Hightower, a wide receiver from Miami. He's a sit-out guy. So is Brevin Jones from Mississippi State, an offensive lineman. Those two guys will have to sit out. Blake Gerasati, Desmond Dan, and Treshawn Smith, along with Christian Bell, are instant impact guys as grad transfers. And I think that's maybe the biggest thing that – Hey, Lovey sees some needs in his roster for this fall. Why not go get some guys that have maturity already? You would hope some guys that may come in with some baggage beforehand, but you 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 know you hope that they know what they're doing. They know how to take care of themselves both on and off the field, and they can in their short time at Illinois make an impact. You add Luke Ford, the uh, transfer who had to sit out last year from Georgia, the tight end Derek Smith from Miami, another Miami guy. So we're seeing quite a few Miami guys here coming to Champaign. And Chase Brown, the running back from Western Michigan, should have added Derek Smith, uh, is the safety from Miami. He also had to sit out last year. So those are sit-out guys. Chase Brown did get to play a little bit last year, and he only got to play, what, half the year, came into camp late. He got the waiver, so used his entire year for that, but did see some action on the field, which surprised me at the time a little bit. But, hey, look, you want to get on the field and play with your brother as much as possible. So what do you make, Marley, of all of these transfers and that Lovey Smith's approach now has been, hey, look, if we can't hit the high school recruiting and if we can't hit that as hard and maybe hit on as many players as we want, we can just go out and get all these transfers. Yeah, and I think that's a good thing. I think with the the grad transfer market, it becomes very secure in a sense that you know these guys are going to be able to come in right away. You don't have to worry about, you know, some of the transfer waivers. I think sometimes that can be that can be a gamble. I mean, there's no real way that the NCAA kind of grants these waivers. It seems like they're just kind of playing roulette with it all and they grant some transfers waivers and some not. So with 
the grad transfer route, you know, it becomes more secure in the sense that they're able to come in. You know, the coaches have seen what they had been able to do at um, these other schools. And I think Lovey Smith is really, he's building essentially a grad transfer culture, which I think only is bringing in more of them. So if we go back to last season, you know, when they got Joshi Matsuorbebe, Alule Batifu, Brandon Peters, these were all guys that made a really big impact on the team. So if, you know, other people who are entering the transfer portal see that and they want to, because like you mentioned, Brett, you said divorce is, is good. They're leaving these schools for a reason because they want something different. And if they see that at Illinois, they're going to have the opportunity as a grad transfer to come in and make an impact and, you know, they won't get benched for uh, their last season of college football, they're going to want to come here. So um, it's it's smart what, what he's doing in that sense. But uh, bringing in a lot of transfers, I feel like, does have its downfalls because they're, they are short-term uh, people. They're not going to be here for, for much longer. They get one or two years and, then, you know, they're out of here. And you bring up a good point there. They can absolutely sell. Hey, look what we did with Wale Batiku. You know, now he's on an NFL roster, at least for now, and in a training camp invite. You know, look what we did with Brandon Peters giving him a chance. Heck, look what we did with Joshi Mator Bebe coming in and leading the team in receiving yards last year and making some of the biggest plays of the season. Heck, some of the biggest plays... Yeah, I mean, some, some of the biggest plays in Illinois history there at Michigan State, you know, and the biggest comeback win in program history and one of the biggest comeback wins in Big Ten history. And so, yes, I agree. They can sell that 100%. The thing that strikes me is can you build a program around transfers? Because you have to hit on them. There is no, hey, we'll develop this prep guy for two or three years. We hope we hit on him. If we don't, we've got three or four other guys that are coming into the program now or maybe already ahead of those guys You know that can develop. You, you have to hit on these grad transfer guys. And I do feel strong about Lovey Smith's evaluation and his staff. I think that's one thing that they've done fairly well overall is they've hit on their guys that they've wanted to get. I mean, you look back at the class of 2017, and there was a lot of nobodies in that class. But, you know, there's quite a few players that came out of that class that are now these upperclassmen this season that are juniors and seniors that are going to make big impacts and are going to be all-conference players. And so, you know, hey, I'm not going to sit here and try and judge Lovey Smith's evaluation you know he's the Super Bowl coach for a reason in that sense and I think he's got a staff that's done pretty well with that but can they go out and get prep guys in a consistent manner that are going to raise the floor of their talent pool from the team the transfer guys no doubt like they have raised the floor of Illinois football's talent base bar none I mean this is the most talented team in a decade for Illinois coming up this season I think that's what's so exciting or at least what should be so exciting for Illinois fans coming into this fall. Let's hope we have football this fall, right? With everything that's going on with COVID. But the talent base is undeniable, you know, infinitely better than it was under Tim Beckman. Nobody's debating that. It's just, can you make it work? And can you long-term build a program with transfers? You played college volleyball. You said you had some transfers come in. I'm curious what that was like for you with those transfers coming in. How do they mesh? And, and how much of that is on leadership from the team to bring those guys in and and you know bring them up to speed about what their head coach and, and what the leaders expect the culture to be on the team? 
Yeah, so our situation was a little unique because we had a coaching change. So the transfers that we actually got had already had a previous relationship with the coach. So I think it it did create a little bit of animosity because here's us, you know, we had been here for, for two seasons already. Um, my class and um, the class below me, like we were kind of the pioneers of bringing the program back to where it should have been. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, these people come in with this coach and then they think they sort of run the program. Whereas like, us as players had already been there for two years, you know, establishing the culture, putting in the work. So I think it, it sort of creates, obviously every team is different, but in our situation, it was kind of, um, we felt like we were being encroached upon a little bit in the sense of, okay, like we built the program to where it is. Now you're going to come in and like, you haven't been here for the, the 5 a.m. workouts. Like you weren't here for the 6 a.m. lift. You weren't here when we won the conference championship for the first time since blah, blah, blah. Um, so in a sense, it, it kind of disrupts the team dynamic. Obviously, our situation was really unique. Um, I'm not trying to, to bash my head coach or, you know, the transfers that came in because um, I really liked them and they were great. And um, I feel like we the program really – um, got to a good spot, but in the beginning, it was just it, it creates an interesting dynamic. So in in Lovey Smith's case, you know he is not bringing in players from you know where he used to coach essentially, uh, so it's a little different. But I can see where you know maybe there's um, you know some of the the sophomores and juniors on the team that you know had been putting in the work for a couple seasons, and then all of a sudden there's this grad transfer who you know, made an impact wherever he was and now um, is coming in, maybe taking a spot. There can be some kind of conflicts that arise there. So this is a very long-winded answer, but answer. Um, but I feel like you, you get the point of where I'm going with it all. Well, and Marley, it's the same thing that happened when Lovey came in. In his first couple of seasons, he played young. He played all these freshmen, and you had guys that had been here, the elder statesmen that have, like you had said, gone through all the workouts, put in the time at Illinois. Lovey comes in and decides to play all freshmen. They played 20 and started 20-plus freshmen his yeah. first couple of years here. Like That's why they had such a big exodus, because the older players that had been here said, I'm not doing this. Who are you coming in? You know, you're going to take my spot and give it to somebody who's never played college football before? You know, I'm out of here. And so that's essentially what happened at Illinois. Now, fast forward three to four years later, and here we are, and that's why Lovey has said – this is the season that they had been eyeing because now all of these guys are upperclassmen. Some of them redshirted, but majority of them just played right away. They should see the payoff this year, and I think that's what should excite Illini Nation as they come into this fall. You add and supplement all of those pieces with the grad transfers, and now all of a sudden you've got a recipe for success. I get it, though, why Illini fans are like, hey, look, what are you doing here? You've got to be able to hit on high school recruits. Those need to be the base of what you're doing. And then you sprinkle in some you know, grad transfers and sit-out transfers along the way. I, look, I don't know if Lovey intended to have you know, almost 20% of his roster be transfers, but that's where he's going. And he's said in the past that I think he intends to keep doing this because it's been lucrative so far. It's paid off so far. And you can get some really, really talented guys to come into your program. All right, Io DeSumo speaks with the media this week after he wins the Dyke Edelman Award. And I think everyone knew that was coming. 
Uh, we had chatted earlier this week in the department. Hey, looking at the list here, and it's no disrespect to anybody else on that list, but Desumu was uh, pretty much a clear-cut lock to win this award for the top Illinois male athlete. Jacqueline Quaid wins the female Edelman Award for the top female athlete at Illinois. I saw that one coming as well. I mean, she's a two-time All-American, you know, has played in a Final Four, led Illinois to the NCAA tournament three straight years. Uh, what were your initial thoughts about both of the selections for the Dyke Edelman Awards? Yeah, I mean, absolutely no surprise with either of them. You know, I don't think Illinois basketball has seen a player like Io in quite some time that, that comes in as, as a freshman, sophomore, and makes the kind of impact that he does. Um, so, um, obviously, no surprise on the male side. And then with Jacqueline Quaid, of course, um, probably one of the most successful Illinois volleyball players. Um, she played with um, another all-time great, Jordan Poulter, and is now continuing her her beach volleyball career at UCLA, which I think is a testament as to how great of an athlete she actually is. Because for people who aren't familiar with volleyball, I think they would you know, equate, okay, she was very successful on the court. Obviously, she would be a very good beach volleyball player, but that's not the case at all. They are two completely different sports with a completely different skill set that you need. Um, There's different rules. Um, The plays are ran differently. You're adjusting to playing with one other player as opposed to to five other teammates. Um, So I think for her to go and do that and see just a little bit of success at at UCLA that she did um, before the season got cut short um, is, like I said, a testament to how great of an athlete she is. And um, the same thing with Io. I mean, no question that he is um, one of the best to ever come through the program. I'd never really thought about that, Marley, until you said it, but there's no rotations, right? You're just playing with one other person on the beach side. That is a lot different, I would imagine. And you're having to do so many other different things, right? I mean, explain that a little bit more in a sense of like, you know, hey, if you're an outside, you know, you and especially if you're a six rotation player, right, you're going to do a lot of those things. But several players don't do that, right? They sub in and out and, you know, maybe they're not as strong in all those things. How how much more well-defined do you have to be on the beach side than opposed to just on the court? Yeah, with beach volleyball, you kind of need to be a jack of all trades because it's just two of you. So you need to be able to pass, you need to be able to set, you need to be able to block, you need to be able to hit versus an indoor, it's a little bit more specialized. You know, if you're a setter, you set and you you pass and you block a little bit. You know, it's it's... But in Jacqueline's case, you know, she was an outside hitter. So outsides are usually kind of the more versatile players because they are the ones that have the opportunity to play all six rotations. So she did, you know, get um, a lot of opportunities to pass and play defense. Uh, You know, she was blocking and um, hitting, obviously. Uh, So then to go to beach volleyball, though, and you're expected to do all these things all the time it's only two of you you still get three touches so you are touching the ball every single play um versus sometimes in indoor volleyball like you can go a couple plays without even uh touching the ball unless you know you're a setter but you know let's say you're you're a middle hitter sometimes you just don't get set or you know you're not blocking anything and there's a couple times where you're not 
making a play, but with beach volleyball, it's only two of you. You're expected to make a play every time. Um, if you've ever like ran in the sand, jumped in the sand, walked in the sand, you know it's a whole lot more difficult than you know concrete or wherever you're playing another sport. So just that alone. Um, and then you're you're playing with the elements as well. Um, in indoor volleyball, you know, it's just the gym. You don't have to worry about the sun, the wind, um, the heat, the cold, things like that. And um, just being able to, to learn and do all those things can be really difficult, especially for a first-time beach volleyball player. I can't tell you how many times I've seen, uh, you know, people that are amazing at indoor volleyball on the show you know, to the beach to, to hang out and they, they play volleyball and it looks like they've they've never played before. They really are two different sports and for her to be able to go to one of, not even just a beach volleyball program, but one of the best in the entire country, they were ranked number two before the season um, got ended. They're de- the defending national champions is just um, incredible. So hats off to Jacqueline. Good for her. A jack of all trades. There you go. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I'll see myself out. That was Marley's favorite segment of the entire podcast. And what is this episode eight we've done now? Or I just got, I think so. I just gave I can, you a chance to break down volleyball. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. That's, any more? Any more volleyball questions? Uh, I. You know what? I. I think we need to move on here. Uh, but you know, <laughs> I'm just teasing, Marley. Uh, no, that that was fun. That's great. And like I said, I'd never really thought about that, but. Uh, the sand is a whole different element, and you know I think Jacqueline's going to have a great chance to be successful. She does have another year out there, so you know a, a great opportunity for her. But Io winning the Edelman Award, no surprise. He certainly did it all for Illinois this year. Speaking about a jack of all trades, and on his Zoom call this week, and we're going to hear from Io in just a second. He said he is pretty much all in to turning pro. Now, this is where the dilemma comes in because, you know, we're a couple weeks out from when he made his announcement, a couple, three, four weeks now at this point, I guess, almost a month. We were supposed to be just a couple of weeks out from when he was going to have to make up his mind of whether he was going to turn pro and stay in the draft or come back to college. But the NCAA this week announced that it will not impose its June 3rd rule for players to make that decision. So it's going to be postponed. It sounds like there's going to be a combine, which I was certainly hoping for because he needs to get some workouts in. And he knows that and he said that. But, you know, I think this only helps Io Marley because now he can wait a little bit longer. He can... Just kind of say, hey, look, let's evaluate the situation some more. And ultimately, he can hopefully get some feedback after a workout. How, how important do you feel like those workouts are for him at this point without an NCAA tournament or even Big Ten tournament for him to show on a bigger stage what he can do at the next level? Yeah, I think it's it's necessary. I mean, for us covering the team, obviously, you know, we've seen what, what Io can do, but, you know, maybe – um, for for some of the teams that are that are looking to to draft guys, you know they're looking at an entire pool of of candidates. So um, he needs to to get as much eyes on him as he can get. So uh, you know, props to the to the NBA for continuing to to move forward with what could possibly be um, a combine. You know, I think everyone uh, needs needs a fair chance at this point, um, considering there was no no tournament um and i think if io can can show what he can do in in the combine that'll um 
and definitely improve his chances. Um, but I think another thing to take away from that Zoom call, too, was that he didn't really completely um, knock off the possibility of um, returning, uh, which I thought was interesting as well, that, you know, it's completely... You know, it's not not completely out of sight, out of mind that there is, you know, that small chance that he could um, come back. So I guess we'll have to see, you know, how everything plays out. Here, here's Io talking about his process. How look will be me um, leaning towards going pro because that's what I'm working towards. That's my goal at the end of the day is to play in the NBA and to work as hard as I can to be picked as high as possible. But, um, of course, I didn't sign with an agent because there's so many uncertainties. But if everything goes the right way and um, everything get back on track, then, um, of course, I'll be um, staying in the draft and getting better and working out to be the best um, player I can be. All right, so there's Io DeSumo. Marley, for me, the thing that stands out, like you mentioned, look, it's not that he doesn't want to come back. He just wants to go make money, right? I, I don't think he hates <laughs> Illinois or anything. I don't think there's any – you know, discrepancy there. Certainly Brad Underwood would love to have Io DeSumo back. But Io wants to live out his childhood dream of playing in the NBA. And that's something that nobody is going to doubt or want to take away from him. The curious thing to me is where this timing of the pandemic comes in. And it certainly hurts him because, look, the odds makers and the, you know, NBA uh, people that come up with these mock drafts and all of that, that talk to the GMs and executives and blah, blah, blah. They're not high on Io at this point. And that's where I feel like he really needs these workouts. ESPN has him at number 80 in their top 100 draft prospects. Remember, uh, 80 people don't get picked in the draft. Okay, so that's not a good thing for Io. CBS has him at number 55 in their latest mock draft that came out this week. Jeff Goodman has him as a guy that is leaning towards going pro, which I agree with 100%. Io says that, look, he wants to go pro. Jeff Goodman also says he doesn't think that's a good idea if Io goes pro that he needs to come back and, and have another season. So if you would have told me a week after this pandemic happened, if Io was coming back, I would have said there's a 99.9% chance Io turns pro. At this point, Marley, I think he is really strongly thinking about coming back. And that especially if he only gets a handful of workouts, let's say he doesn't even get invited to the combine because not everyone gets invited to the combine. Only, yeah. I, I believe it's the top 60 get invited. Uh, don't quote me on that. But there, there's not a clear-cut chance that he's going to get an invite to the combine. I right. think he's like 70-30 right now, if I had to put a number on it, that there's a 30% chance he may come back. That's how I view it which I know Alana Nation would just absolutely love, and we'll get to Kofi in a moment, but how do you feel about these chances, and how has it changed for you in the last, let's say, two months? Honestly, I go back and forth. I go back and forth every time we ask this question. I feel like at the beginning, maybe it was like three weeks after you know the pandemic kind of hit, I was like, oh yeah, he comes back for sure. And then I was like, no, 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 he's all in. And then now I'm kind of like, oh, well, Maybe you never know with the timing of everything. And I think, you know, he talked about it too in his in his call that he said, you know, just the sole decision of declaring for the draft was probably one of the most dis difficult decisions he's had to make in his entire life. So I can't imagine what this must be like 
with all of the external factors that are going on. In a perfect world, you know, if he got to go to the NCAA tournament and he went to the combine and, you know, did great, showed his stuff, for sure he was he was out of here. But right now, with everything up in the air, I don't know. It's just I can't I can't imagine being in his shoes. I would hate to be in his shoes because it just sounds like it, with so much uncertainty, it's so hard to make a decision. Yeah, and like I said, it would have absolutely shocked me two months ago if we would have even been to this point and talking about Io coming back because I said, no, he's he's out of here. He's gone. You know, He doesn't want to come back. He wants to go chase his dream and make money, and kudos to him if he can do it. Now, it wouldn't surprise me all that much if he did come back, if he evaluates everything and says, look, with – the pandemic going on right now with my limited ability to play at bigger stages, you know, in, in an NCAA tournament, at a combine, whatever that may be, I'm going to come back. I'm going to refine my game. I'm going to prove everyone wrong that I should have been in that conversation to begin with. We're going to kick it at Illinois one more year. And I think we're all in agreement at this point that Kofi's going to come back. He's not on any mock drafts whatsoever, not in the top 100. I think everyone agrees that Kofi needs to come back for a sophomore season. Now, does Kofi feel like he needs to do that? Does he want to just go play in Europe, go turn pro, go you know somewhere else, maybe get a G League contract down the road? I don't know. I don't know what's going on in his head. But are you on that same page with Kofi that you feel like it's almost a done deal he's coming back? Yeah, I think so too. I feel like initially he kind of, you know, bid farewell to the team and his whole announcement, it really didn't seem like he was coming back. He kind of said a goodbye, but just seeing things on social media and, um, you know, I still see on, on Instagram that he's still, you know, doing the workouts that, um, their head strength and conditioning coach is providing to them. He still seems very much involved in the team which kind of surprises me if, you know, you're a guy that wants to move on and, and do something else. And I think, too, um, especially with, like, the mock draft stuff coming out, I don't know how much attention he does pay to that, but it could be, you know, concerning if your name isn't on that. Um, I mean, he definitely would have a future playing um, professionally overseas, but given that he still seems involved with the team um, and just the uncertainty in the world right now, uh, I think he, he does come back. I tell you what, that would be a heck of a team to cover, Marley. If Io comes back, if Kofi comes back, you add in Adam Miller, you add in Andre Curbelo, mm-hmm. you've got a talented, talented team there and one that's going to be right there at the top when the preseason predictions come out about where the teams are going to finish. And man, selfishly, Marley, I hope that happens because my, how much fun would that be to cover a Big Ten title contender? We got to do it for a time last year when they were tied at the top of the first place, even had it uh, outright for uh, just a little bit of time there, if I do remember right. But uh, man, that would be a lot of fun. I know a lot of nation would love it and we would love nothing more to, to cover that for uh, the fan base. All right, Taylor Edwards and Michael Paradise win the Medal of Honor. That's awarded to two of the top graduating seniors at every Big Ten institution for their work both competitively on the field in competition and for their work academically. We've got stories on that on our website, WCIA.com. Uh, Andres Feliz, Dre Brown, and Edwards win the Spirit Award. Any surprises in there for you, especially the Spirit Award? I thought they pinned that right on the head with uh, Feliz, Brown, and Edwards. I agree. Um, my only caveat to the thing is why why do a, a co award? You know, I guess they were both 
Um, obviously really great contenders uh, for the award, but I think, you know, maybe they should have just picked one. Honestly, I don't know which one out of the two I would have picked, um, which is probably why they, they did them as a co-award. But for um, Dre Brown and Andres Feliz, I mean, um, just they off the court or off the field, on the field, on the court, um, great people. They always, you know, I don't know, when, when we talk to them, um, you know, they were they were always great, seemed like great people. Uh, Taylor Edwards as well. Um, I wasn't here for, for most of her career, but in the short time that I've gotten to, to get to know her in a little bit, and just the fact of um, her playing on the softball team and then going to, to continue her career um, on the basketball court, um, good for her. Uh, so, yeah, no, nothing really, really surprised me out of these. Yeah, and if I had to pick one, I probably would have picked Dre Brown just for everything that he was able to do in his career, playing five years, missing his first two years with knee injuries, coming back, being a significant yeah. contributor this last season for Illinois, and pretty much single-handedly winning Illinois like the Purdue game where it was just a ground-and-pound game, and, and he really, really shined in that game in the rain in West Lafayette. But I, I can't fault them for wanting Andres Feliz to be in there as well because what a true competitor and a team-first guy willing to not start for much of the season and still put his team first. So one of the best six men in the Big Ten, uh, no doubt about that. All right, we've got stories on those. Uh, we've got stories on those stories. How about that? On our website, just go to WCI.com. I want to chat about this briefly as we hopefully get back to a, a return to normal and hopefully because I just want it to be safe. I think that's the biggest thing. It's going to take somebody to come out and say, hey, we're coming back. That's what NASCAR is doing here. That's what – uh, professional golf has done on the PGA Tour. They're coming back here in a couple of weeks as well. But NASCAR back this weekend at Darlington. And look, I'm not a huge NASCAR fan. I may tune in on Sunday, though, just to see how it plays out. And I think they'll have a big audience for this. They're going to have seven races in the next 11 days starting on Sunday. And it all kicks off this Sunday. And there's no fans. There are very limited restrictions on how many people can be in the stadium or in the raceway at a certain time as far as crew the drivers are coming straight from their tour buses like to get into their cars there's no warm-ups there's no pit you know uh qualifying there's there's nothing so they're just getting in the car and they're racing and i think it's going to be very unique and i, I don't know about you marley i'm going to guess you didn't grow up watching nascar maybe you're going to shock me here and say you did but does the intrigue of all of these sports coming back that maybe you didn't even care about before now entice you to want to tune in just to see sports a and b just to see how it all is going to work yeah um well to answer your first question i did not grow up watching nascar um i don't think i've even watched many of you know some of the bigger races i mean i grew up not too far away from the daytona speedway and i've never been there before but um yeah i think um for for these sports that you're able to the social distance. I think there's there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to come back. Um, and maybe you know it's it's a good thing for for some of these sports in a sense that you know maybe they hadn't gotten a lot of publicity. Maybe they were overshadowed by the basketballs, the footballs, the baseball, that kind of thing. And now you know this is this is their time uh, to shine. So I think for there to actually be. Um, you know, a, a sporting, a live televised sporting event 
on TV um, is a big thing in this world right now. I mean, I know UFC has been kind of been doing it for a little bit, but uh, I think it's kind of what what people might need. And even fans that aren't NASCAR fans, myself included, might tune in. Might on a big might there from Marley, but that's, that's okay. Hey, if you tune in for five minutes and you just see what it's like to have no fans, I think that'd be interesting enough. Kind of like the Korean baseball league, you know, they're putting up uh, those fake things in the, yeah. in the the fake fans in the stands. It's just very unique in that sense. So I know one thing, and that's we're all looking forward to getting back to whatever this new normal is going to be. Because for a time and a season here, it's it's not going to be just the way it was or the way it's always been. I think there's going to be some big changes in that all right the big change in all of our lives on sunday nights has been the last dance and my oh my what episode seven especially and eight were able to bring to the table i thought was just fascinating on so many different levels especially episode seven it's the best yet the ending was incredible i thought uh, jason Hare, the director did an unbelievable job putting this all together and it, when you look and break down just episode by episode it all was coming to this, right, about MJ's dad dying, getting murdered, uh, his gambling, the theories around that, him going to play baseball, how unique that was of him being in Birmingham at A, and all of this press and people there and fans and MJ riding a bus to all these games. It's just the fascination for me is just endless about how all this would have played out. And for me as a media person, I put myself in those people's shoes. And you saw in episode seven, Marching Greco, Dan Roan. Dan Roan used to work here as the sports director back in the early 80s. He's now at WGN, been there for decades. He was in the last dance there when they all announced that uh, MJ was going to retire. That was part of episode seven. And Marley, I don't know what stood out to you the most, but for me, it was just the competitiveness and the desire behind all of these things from Michael, and we saw that at the ending of episode seven. Man, he was in tears there. Had to stop the interview. The the scene cuts, the episode ends, and you just sit there and you're like, whoa, that was awesome. Right. Yeah. I think that was the big thing, too, when this documentary came out, was a lot of people were saying, like, oh, people aren't going to like him. When, when this comes out, because, you know, he's not going to seem like a nice guy. And they asked him that question exactly. They're like, I don't know exactly how they phrased it, but it was like, how do you feel, you know, being perceived as, as not a nice guy? And he's like, that's just because I want to win so badly. And that was when he, he broke down in tears. And I think just the way episode seven ended was, like, incredible. Incredible. I... Just to see somebody who, first of all, is, okay, he made it to the top. He made it to the absolute highest level that he could possibly make it in basketball. And then... Not just basketball, Marley, in the world. He's the most popular athlete of all time. Yeah, well, no, I'm saying, like, he went from basketball then. He kind of started at the beginning and pursued a baseball career. But for him to still continuously work as hard as he did, whether it be the baseball field, the basketball court... Um, I think that is what a lot of athletes don't have, and I think that's what just some of the all-time greats have. Is like I think you know Brad Underwood talked not to compare Io to Michael Jordan, but Brad Underwood was like Io Dusumu just has it, like he has it, and I think when people refer to that, it's 
exactly this, like this, the drive, the work ethic, the absolute like competitive nature that Michael Jordan has, that he doesn't care what people think of him, what, you know, the media might be saying. It's like, I just want to win and that's it. I don't care. And a lot of people don't have that. And I think that's why he is the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT for that, right? And it, it, there's never enough. I mean, yeah. it, there's just never enough. You're always competing, and I can't relate to that. I mean, I'm a competitive person by nature. I want to win, but I'm not willing to do anything to win. And yeah. I feel like that's the difference for a guy like Michael. And he's not the only one. For these really high-level guys, there's this inner drive in them that it's never enough. They can never be satisfied with that. And to me, that's kind of sad in a sense because I think we all need to be satisfied with some things in life sometimes, you know, like recognize the moment, recognize where you're at in life, recognize your success, enjoy that, but know that there's always more work to be done. That's the fine line in all of this. And I feel like, you know, Michael would have been terrible to have as a teammate in a sense. But if you knew Michael and you knew who he really was and what really drove him, he was really doing it just to make you better. And I think you have to know that to, to understand it and, you know, to not be pissed off at practice every day. And, and, you know, that's where that fine line comes in. And certainly, you know, decades later here, I I got the sense from that a lot of his teammates were still struggling with that sense that like, yeah, Michael, he's, I mean, just to flat out put it, he's an asshole, but like, it is what it is, right? Like he, he wants you to be good. He wants you to not just be good, but be great and succeed. And he's never going to be satisfied. Yeah. And I think it's like, that probably was the frustrating thing on MJ's part is like, not everybody has the same mentality that he did. So he probably got so frustrated when, you know, people didn't want to spend an extra hour after practice shooting free throws or whatever it may be, you know? And I think that's too, that he was able to hold his teammates accountable. Um, And I think that's an important thing for, for any leader is to, to hold yourself and other people accountable. Like he was holding his teammates to the same standard that he held himself to, which is what I think made him a great player, but made, you know, the people around you, better as well if you're a great player that's awesome good for you but if you're able to make the people around you better because of your leadership and your work ethic obviously it comes with a price people thought he was an ass sometimes but um here he is on you know one of the best basketball teams of all time six championships i can't imagine and i think you know due in part to to him and his mentality and his competitive drive and the ability to make other people better. MJ wanted to go down as the greatest ever, and he did. And he was willing to do anything to get to that point. I love the fact that he said straight up in his interviews, you know, 20 years after his playing career is over, I was able to lead the way I I did because I had the game to back it up. If you're just a leader and you don't have the talent or game to back up what you say or your smack talk, it doesn't resonate, but he did, and he was able to push yeah. his teammates to levels that they probably didn't think they were able to get to because he was the best of all time, and he was willing to do that. And he was willing to lead like that. It takes a certain type of personality and character and talent to lead the way he led, and that's a bold way to do it, but he had it all to back up, 
And I think that was interesting. The other thing that stuck out to me, and, and I try and say this as a leader all the time, it's I'm never going to put you in a position of something that I am have never done or I'm not willing to do. And I think that also takes uh, an accountability from a leadership standpoint of saying like, look, I've been there. I know what it's like. And mm-hmm. I'm, I, you know, we're in this together, so to speak, even though some of his teammates probably thought, Hey, this is all about MJ, you know, and they admitted him all that they were scared of him. You know, there, there's yeah. that clout that comes I around with be. it, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, you have to be willing to play with that. And I think MJ loved the fact when, when guys didn't back down to him, you know, when they were willing to rise to the occasion. And even though they probably failed in that more times than they won, it's like, hey, I'm sticking up to this guy, you know, and, and I'm going to go out there and have some cockiness and have some game and have some confidence that I can go out there and compete with MJ. And and in practice, too, that was the other thing. It's like, hey, and we hear Brad Underwood say this all the time and, and his players – all the time say practices are harder than games you know man those mj practices just looked brutal you know and uh you know especially you know you're coming off a road trip or whatever else and here's mj at practice you know all ready to go you know pushing you even further than you thought you might want to go that day or certainly thought that you were willing to go that day and and you know here's mj trying to get better but I don't know. I'm looking forward to nine and ten. It's going to be tough to top seven, and I think the curiosity in me wonders how they're going to wrap this thing up. Obviously, it's going to culminate with the 1998 championship and at the end of the run and the the second three peat. But uh, you know, I I don't know from a media standpoint and perspective and documentary perspective, I'm I'm very curious how it all wraps up uh, in, in the final episode in ten on Sunday night. Yeah, I feel like there's still so much. To, to be said, you know, I feel like they haven't even like unturned all the stones. Like, how are they going to fit that into two more episodes? You know, like they should have made this a 20 part series. I'm sure they have the content to do so, you know. Oh, they could have made this a 20 part series and sold it all. And, you know, it would have been fantastic. They still would have had the eyeballs on it in episodes 17 and 18 just like i think they do now it's seven and eight you know i saw the other day they're averaging like five to six million viewers per sunday night live i mean that's incredible that's just so many eyes on this the other thing that stood out to me is just how much mj transcended not only basketball but the entire world you know i mean mj was a world phenomenon and 25 years later still is a world phenomenon you know he's one of the most influential people of all time and i think he's going to go down as that just for what he did there's very few people that are able to transcend sport and the world like he did with nike with everything else that you know he accomplished in his life and still is able to do all the years years later you know there i don't know there's very few athletes you know whether it's muhammad ali i think you could throw tiger woods in that in a sense babe ruth you know, the, you're at an upper echelon of an upper echelon of athletes that, you know, really had an impact both socially and in their sport. And, you know, I don't know. It's it's just incredible. And, and the thing that I think about, too, when I watch this a lot, and I don't know if you do this or not, but can you imagine what it would have been like to cover those teams? You know? I know. I, I look at those media scrums. Oh, it gives me nightmares. Like, how do they – like the poor camera guys like all the way in the back and like everyone's in there with the micro like i've been in no media scrum that has ever been that large i couldn't like it's insane pretty incredible stuff and you talked to kent brown 
from yes. Illinois, uh, the Illinois Department of Intercollegiate Athletics. He's the sports information director, the lead guy over there, about MJ coming to State Farm Center, which was then Assembly Hall back in mm-hmm. what would have been 2009, I think it was, uh, yeah. when his son, Jeffrey Jordan, played at Illinois. That's going to air this Sunday. What was your conversation like with Ken about the lead up to that? Yeah, so I just talked to Kent, and basically he was the point person for when Michael Jordan would come to basketball games. So he said that they actually had to get an NCAA waiver that would allow Michael Jordan to park in a secured spot so he was able to walk in uh, to the game and not be, you know, swarmed by, by people. And he said the biggest thing about, you know, wanting with Michael Jordan coming to the games was that he wanted him to feel like he was just a father coming to watch his son uh, play basketball, which I can imagine must be incredibly difficult just to do, like, let alone anything, but go to a basketball game where everybody knows who you are um, and just feel normal. But I think that's what Kent uh, tried to do for him. He, you know, mentioned some some funny stories when, you know, Michael Jordan would call him on the phone and he would say, hey, how's it going, my friend? And Kent was like, oh, it's like we were actually, we were friends, like we were tight. Um, but here is a little bit of our conversation that we had. Being someone who followed the team, the Bulls, through that period, um, and knowing the championships and how popular Michael was, and knowing he was really the greatest player of all time, um, it wasn't lost on me that uh, how special a moment that was to be able to meet with him. And we actually got NCAA waiver uh, to allow him to have a special parking spot in the um, – tunnel our goal when he came to our games was that he could be just like a dad who was coming to watch his son play come in enjoy it and then be able to leave without being hounded and I think we accomplished that um but but still having him through here you know various times during those three years was was fun is exciting and um you know we hope that that uh, Michael enjoyed his his visits here all right and like I mentioned you can watch more this Sunday on 6 and 10, and we'll also have uh, that posted on our website, WCIA.com, so you can um, learn a little bit more about Michael Jordan and his time uh, here in Champaign and, and what that was like for uh, Kent Brown to kind of be the point guy on, on all of that. Some good stuff. Kind of crazy still that, you know, MJ's son played for Illinois before transferring uh, to okay. USF for his last uh, couple of years there, but uh, good stuff. I'm kind of sad, Marley, that this is the last Sunday of the last dance. Me too. It's the last, the last dance. It's the last. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy stuff. It's been great, though. I'm so glad ESPN moved that up and allowed yeah. us all to enjoy that during this uh, pandemic time. And we're all trying to figure out, you know, what to watch and what to do with ourselves as we're, you know, be, doing our best to stay socially isolated and all this. All right, Marley, it's been a fun 50 plus minutes here. Crazy. Wow. Week. We're still talking. Time flies when you're having fun, right? It really does. I was just going to say that, actually. You stole it right out of my mouth. There we go. But uh, it's, it's been fun. We'll do it again next week, every Friday, here on the WCIA 3 in 1 podcast for Marley Weirda. I'm Brett Behrens. See you next week.